Hello and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and in this episode, I'm talking with Dan Butner, the National Geographic Fellow, award-winning journalist, and New York Times best-selling author who discovered the five places in the world called the Blue Zones Hotspots, where people live the longest, healthiest lives. He's here to inspire us to eat more of what he calls the number one longevity food. Listen and find out just what that is. Dan Butner, it is so good to have you here. Thanks for coming on and talking with us. It is a delight. Delight. It's a delightful day. And, you know, you are kind of, I think so many people who are listening now already have heard of you, have heard of Blue Zones, but I kind of feel like I live in this bubble in a way where you're like a rock star in my bubble world. And so I'm super excited to have you on and anyone who knows your work can understand why. But for those who might not be familiar with your work and familiar with the Blue Zones concept, can you explain that to us? Tell us what are the Blue Zones and why is it such a magical thing to know about? Well, uh, it's almost been 20 years now I started this project, but the idea was to, in a sense, reverse engineer longevity and do so responsibly. So instead of looking for keys or insights in, uh, into lengthening our, our useful life in test tubes or in Petri dishes or in some sort of genetic sequencing machine, um, we actually found populations that are living manifestly longer than the rest of us. And I did this with funding from the National Institutes on Aging and under the aegis of National Geographic. And uh, we were very careful. We, we worked with a team of demographers, parsed through worldwide census data, and found five areas. Okinawa, Japan, longest lived women. Sardinia, Italy, longest lived men. The um, uh, island of Ikaria, Greece, a place where people live eight years longer, but largely without dementia. Uh, the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, and then among the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. And these are all measurably longer lived, in some places living about a decade longer than us. But most significantly, we're not looking to find superhumans with better genes. In fact, these people are all genetic, part of a genetic uh, melting pot, but rather a way of life that uh, of people who are not getting the diseases that foreshorten our lives. So that's the difference. That's what's giving them 10 years. So that also means they're biologically younger at every decade. Uh, they're they're uh, not struggling through their life with diabetes or heart disease or uh, many kinds of cancers or even dementia. And they're saving a lot of money because they're not blowing it on, on you know, healthcare and, and uh, they stay productive much longer. But then once we found these places, then uh, we recruited another team of experts to go find the common denominators. So what's happening? And remarkably, no matter where you go in the world and find long-lived people, you see the same things happening over and over and over again. And um, you know, what, what, just one facet is the diet. And I've been writing about diet lately because people are interested in diet and this Blue Zone American Kitchen, the idea is to make it really easy to eat to 100, but it's actually part of a much bigger constellation of factors that um, are all adoptable, by the way. There's, no, there's nothing that's out of reach for anybody listening right now. 
So, and, and so I want to, so the blue zones are these five areas where there's this incredible longevity, where there's the most people living to a hundred or more as you're, as you're saying, and they have all of these, and it's all over the world, which is really fascinating to me too. They're really like in various continents, right? Um, but I love that there's this commonality. It really speaks to the humanity, our hu shared humanity in a way that there's an incredible commonality of what things can be done wherever you happen to live, right? But um, I like also that you say, and I want to say, we're going to get to your one thing. We're keeping everyone a little bit in suspense because your one good thing, one real good thing is to eat more of the number one longevity food. So everyone's just going to have to hang on for a minute to find out what that is here, but we will get to it soon. But I really did want to get more into understanding the blue zones and what these things people have that they're doing in common. Um, one of the things in particular that you say in your new book, um, in the in the introduction, and by the way, you have several books, and this new one is called Blue Zones American Kitchen. So we'll talk more about that too, because it's a really beautiful book. But one of the things that you say in the intro is when you're talking about the blue zones in general, is that the people live in environments that make healthy choices unavoidable. So I think that's really interesting in a way because so much about our food environment makes it almost unavoidable to not eat. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. In our environment today. So talk about this environment. Talk about what does that mean that it's making healthy choices unavoidable? Well, you go to any of these blue zones and nobody is doing the things that we're doing to stay healthy. Nobody's on a diet. Nobody, there's no gyms or CrossFit or Pilates classes. People aren't calling an 800 number and buying a bunch of supplements or uh, loading up on superfoods. Uh, they, they don't have heroic discipline. They don't have a greater sense of individual responsibilities than Americans have. They just live their lives. And somehow, and they have, by the way, they have the same sort of um, diversity of genes that that we do here in America, but yet they're living an extra 10 years. So um, uh, the insight that I came away with is that if you want to get people to change their uh, um, health, if you want to get people healthier, don't try to spend a lot of time and money uh, trying to change people's minds or even their behavior, because while that works uh, occasionally in the short run, it fails for almost all the people, almost all the time in the long run. What does work is changing their environment. And I built an, you know, a big company based on that insight. I get paid by insurance companies to go into cities and work with the city government and to work with the, both the private and the public sector comprehensively citywide. In every city, every major city we worked in, we managed to lower the obesity rate and thereby cut, in many cases, hundreds of millions of dollars off the city's healthcare costs. So this approach is working. Yeah, this makes so much sense. It's like everywhere you turn here, it's, you know, there's elevators are easier to take than stairs, for example. I remember when I was in um, Spain, which is not in one on one of your lists, but it's sort of like this very healthy culture Close. that I was, I was living in. You had to uh, the the people who live there had to go down this gigantic hill to the grocery store, and then bring their groceries. Walk the up this, and these old ladies with these big bags would walk up this hill, and this was every day. This was part of their life, and 
you know, they're not getting in a car to do it. They're not hopping on a bus. They're literally dragging. <laughs> it was, but it was part of seeing their neighbors. And you talk a lot about the many factors that it's not just what you eat, it's community, it's activity, it's all of these things. So keeping that in mind, I think that's one of the things as on this podcast, we talk about one real good thing, but no one thing is going to change your life completely. That it, we really need to look at this whole thing in context as an environmental thing, not just a self uh, uh, that you can will yourself to do this, that the environment around you matters. Um, so I completely agree. And you do bring up all of those things. Um, but with the, all of that in mind, that this is really lifestyle. Um, and in, in terms of the environment, while we may not be able to control the environment when we walk out our door, we can control the environment in our homes. And I, so I think there's at least that, that you can have a certain, uh, develop a certain environment in your home that propels a more healthful lifestyle. So at least we have, you know, we have to understand our spheres of control as far as that goes. Yeah. Well, I'm probably a little bit more disruptive than that. Than that. I, I mean, we vote with our wallets every day and we spend our money on diets of over $100 billion a year, another $100 billion a year on exercise programs. And they are unmitigated failures in the long run. And um, we, if we realize, you know, this is the one big thing. I know that we're going to get to that, by the way, and it's worth <laughs> waiting for. But the one, the one really good idea here, it goes back to if you want to get healthier, live longer, and actually be happier. I wrote a book on this too. Don't try to change your mind, change your environment. And to your question, uh, what what can you do to your home? For example. We know that taking a toaster off your counter, this is Cornell Food Lab. I know you went to Cornell, um, but Cornell Food Lab found that when you break up two sets of people and one set of people, you they, they keep the toaster on their counter and the other set of people, they take the toaster off. After two years, the study group is about six, weighs six pounds less. So you're uh, removing this prompt to put something in the toaster. And, you know, most of what we put in toasters isn't all that healthy. And therefore what comes out of it's, you know, even perhaps less healthy. Um, but, um, you know, an another thing that works really well is having a junk food drawer that's out of the way that we don't see. So a lot of us are going to bring junk food into our houses, um, but just to just get it out of sight, you know, we're on these seafood diets. That works really well. But probably the biggest way to shape our environment to have lasting and measurable impact on what we eat, how much physical activity we do, how, how connected we are, is to be really careful about selecting our inner circle of friends, those four or five people who we spend the most amount of most time with. In Okinawa, longest lived women, they call this a moai. And we now know if your three best friends are obese uh, and and uh, 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 and unhealthy, there's about 150% better chance that you'll be overweight yourself. Um, alcohol abuse is measurably contagious. Junk food eating is measurably contagious. Even unhappiness is measurably contagious. So shaping that social environment is so crucial. Uh, and it has lasting impact, impacts. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like, what comes first? I, there's this saying that I've heard that you are the average of all of your friends. And so, you Love know, that. basically you kind of are, you know, and, and that's if you want to ever, you know, if you're dating or I'm married now for 25 years, but if someone out there is dating, I always think 
for friends of mine who are like, look at their friends and then you kind of know who they are. So I don't know. It's funny. What comes first? Do you choose your friends because they're having certain behaviors? But anyway, we can get, we could talk about a lot of these things in depth, but, but yeah, that's a really interesting concept. Like choose who the kinds of people that you want to hang out with is going to help shape the kinds of things you do and the kind of lifestyle that you lead and the kind of positivity or negativity you have. So absolutely. Um, so well, I could just unpack that for 30 seconds. Oh yeah. If you, uh, um, if you hang out with people who sit around and uh, you know watch TV and eat Doritos or sit around the barbecue and eat wieners, guess what you're more likely to do as opposed to if you proactively make sure in your inner circle, there's a friend who's a walking buddy or loves to play pickleball or is fanatic about gardening or a friend that uh, is constantly interested in a new idea and sort of pushing you intellectually or calling you, come on, let's go out to this social event or, or a friend. It's not a bad idea to have a vegetarian or vegan uh, in your media social, I'm of the belief from doing 20 years of blue zone work that you're best off when you're eating whole plant-based food and not that you have to do that all the time. Uh, but having a friend that eats that way and knows where to get that kind of delicious food and how to make that delicious plant-based food, that's going to make it super easy for you to do it way yeah. bigger impact that, you know, January 1st, I ate too much during the holidays. Now I'm going to resolve to get on this healthy diet. And by January 20, 80% of people are no longer on that healthy diet. Yeah. That whole roller coaster is a form of torture. And I really hope that everyone gets off of that this year because you're, it would be a gift to yourself to employ some of these things we're talking about instead. Um, and so as you're talking about the kinds of foods to eat, um, Let's reveal what is it your number one longevity food? It's beans. Beans. The humble Yum, beans. Yay. Humble but glorious, right? Beans, guys. Beans. We've I, talked I, about. I love that. I talk about beans all the I love beans so much. And I've talked about beans on this podcast before um, with Joe Yonan. Actually, you came up in the conversation with him um, and his book, Cool love Joe. Beans. He's awesome. Um, he is my editor. So um, I would, but I would say I said he's awesome even before he was my editor. Um, but uh, but yeah, he has a book called Cool Beans. And we did talk a lot about the culinary aspect of beans, which I think is a nice compliment to our conversation that we're having here, Dan. Um, so why beans? What What is it about beans that make them such an incredible asset to healthy living? So I, I always begin by looking at the, what the world's longest than people have eaten. If you want to know what a centenarian's eaten to live to be 100, you have to know what she was eating as a little girl or what she was middle age and newly retired. And now you can't just ask, what do you, you, know, what do you eat? Because people don't remember. And dietary patterns change. But we, we uh, for my book, The Blue Zone Solution, we got 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the past 80 years. So we were able to actually see what 100-year-olds ate, or at least the populations of 100-year-olds ate. And um, the five foods that uh, are consistent, no matter what continent you're on and there's longevity, are whole grains, greens, uh, many more varieties than we eat here in America, tubers, like sweet potatoes, uh, nuts, 
And then beans. Beans seems to be the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world. And if you're eating about a cup of beans a day, it's probably adding about four years to your life expectancy. So that's where we start on beans. And then and then we can go from there. Well, I know I'm going to live long based on that. If that's the criteria, I'm in on that. So one of the things I... Um, and I think it doesn't have to be difficult. So first of all, one of the things that's great, there's so many great things about beans. I could just go, go, go. Um, one of the things I find when I do nutrition analysis of my recipes is that whenever there's beans in the recipe, the amount of minerals and fiber and B vitamins and everything is like literally astounding. It's like remarkable, truly remarkable yeah. how much nutritional value is in this gorgeous little hearty substance mm -hmm. that fills your belly and makes you feel good and satisfied. And the diversity of cuisines around the world, and this speaks also to your Blue Zones concept, where there's just this incredible global diversity of bean dishes that you can tap into and various types of beans. And you can use dried beans. They're also super affordable. So you can use dried beans and that's like the most economical thing to do. But honestly, I keep, I probably have at least five varieties of canned beans in my cupboard at all times. I usually buy no salt added. I add salt to the recipes myself. So I have control of that, but just keeping them there in your cupboard. So you don't even have to think ahead. <laughs> um, it's the best thing. Just throw them in a salad, easy peasy. But what are some of your favorite bean recipes that you've encountered? I mean, I met the world's longest lived family, the Melise family in Sardinia. Nine siblings, their collective age was 841 years. Oldest was Consolado, who was 109. Every day of their life for lunch, they ate a three bean minestrone, but a kind of a chunky, thick minestrone, not the slurry that you salty slurry you get in most restaurants here. And um, and then the sourdough bread and a little little piece, little glass of wine. They had that you for know. breakfast. You said breakfast or no, lunch? More lunch, lunch. Nice. Sometimes it's for breakfast and dinners. It's also, by the way, usually for dinner too. They just eat the leftovers. They're they're you know they're busy people. But um, so that I eat that. I just took it off my counter. But every every single week, I make a huge pot of that, and that's what I have. That's my first meal of the day, which is usually around eleven. And I have a huge uh, three bean minestrone, but it also has uh, onions and carrots and celery and garlic and tomatoes and potatoes. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a potpourri of fiber and vitamins and, and uh, beans. And, and uh, it's, you know, I'm kind of set for the day then. Oh yeah. So what are the three beans? I mean, I see in my, I could see now maybe white beans, like cannellini type of beans, maybe chickpeas. What other beans would you put in that soup? You nailed kidney beans. There's usually a red bean in there as well, uh, or pinto nice. beans. And you could, yeah. what I love, I love to make minestrone. It's one of my family favorite soups. Um, I usually just use the one bean. So now I'm going to up the ante because of you, Dan. So thank you. And also, I, <laughs> I like to put uh, spinach in there or like a dark green leafy right in there at the end of cooking. Correct. And then it yeah, kind of just like wilts in there and it's beautiful. And it's a great way to yeah. get those dark green leafies too. Do the same thing. And the, you know, the other little trick I learned in blue zones is, um, when you saute the vegetables, do it at a very low heat. Uh, you can use olive oil, uh, but use very little olive oil 
And if you like that olive oil richness, finish it with olive oil. So you don't degrade the oil in the, in the cooking process. And, and uh, you know, I find a lot of people have been eating meat and cheese and eggs their whole life. And that kind of napalms your taste buds. So you usually have to make up for that, that tsunami of flavor with oil and, and putting a little extra olive oil in there, garlic, you know, and I'll even, there, there's some really great natural bullions, um, which also kind of just amp up the flavor. And, you know, for people who are segueing away from eating a standard American diet, that this is a, this is a great way to um, make your taste, but taste buds happy as you do it. Yeah. And we're always coming up with recipes for things like that. So one of the things I wanted to talk about as well, so bean culture, right, is all around the world. And the, the, most of the blue zones are outside of the U.S. So there's only one of the blue zones that you name of the five that's in California. Um, and that's a Seventh-day Adventist group of, uh, of folks. But the rest of America, you bring up the standard American diet. And you know that sound that people may not be aware that's normally referred to as the SAD, the SAD diet, because very often it is. Um, but what I love about your new book is that it brings up the parts of American culture rather than focusing on where we are now, which is in many ways, truly the sad diet, the standard American diet. What is our heritage as Americans in terms of culture and in terms of more healthful food ways? And that's one of the things that you tap into and there are beans involved in that too. So I'd love to kind of like shout out a few of the recipes I noticed. And maybe if you want to as well um, bring up, some of this bean culture in America. So the book again is called, can you tell me the name again, please? I, oh, the Blue Zones American Kitchen. Ah, yes. It is a beautiful book, Blue Zones American yeah. Kitchen. And I love how you talk to different chefs around the country. Um, the photos are gorgeous. And there's recipes you go into, you know, Native American cultural recipes, African American, Latin American, Asian American. And really look at various aspects of our society and food ways and food culture within our country that we can really tap into for inspiration as American eaters, um, which we can, you know, American dining at this point is world dining, world cuisine in some ways, in many ways. Um, but like even starting with Native American foods, you have let's talk about like the three sisters, for example. I don't know, many, many people may have not have heard of the concept of the three sisters, which was a Cherokee way of growing and eating food that these three crops grew together and also complemented each other nutritionally, squash, corn, and beans. So this is a foundational food way of our of the land we are on. <laughs> um, and I think it's important to recognize that and celebrate that and um, yeah, and really appreciate the value, the incredible value of that. Yes. Uh, so just to take a step back, the, you know, the, the ethnicities that are in this book aren't in there as a sort of celebration of ethnicities. I didn't really care about that, quite honestly. I, I started this project by going to NYU. Uh, Marion Nessel actually helped, and uh, we found a uh, um, I spent about 150 hours finding dietary surveys. I was looking for cultures throughout time in America who were eating a blue zone diet, blue zone dietary pattern that I'd found internationally. 
And I didn't find it among my ancestors. I'm German Italian. You know, my, my, my parents brought over the cows and pigs and chickens and pickles and so forth. Um, the diets, uh, there, there was a, uh, uh, a researcher named A.O. Atwater, who um, he, he originally came up with, introduced the ideas of the idea of calories to America so you could actually measure your food. But he'd done dietary surveys between 1890 and 1930 among all these ethnicities. And remarkably, we found the diets of longevity among the Asian, African, Native, and Latin Americans, Latin America, Latinos. And um, so then for the book, uh, National Geographic photographer David McLean and I, during the pandemic, we spent two years. I also hired a producer to find 55 chefs who knew how to bring this way of eating back to life. Many of them were historians. So all of the recipes in the book represent this these culinary traditions and really the best manifestation of it. And, you know, to, to come back around to your, your question, the three sisters, uh, bean, squash, and, and corn, that was practiced by Native Americans, especially in the South, not so much up where I come from, Minnesota, they ate more wild rice and that sort of thing. But um, uh, interestingly, I worked with a Wampanoag Native American. They were the people who inhabited the lands the pilgrims uh, landed on and a food archaeologist named Paul Marco, and we reproduced a Thanksgiving dinner uh, on based on the best historical evidence of what we really probably had or what the pilgrims probably ate uh, in the early part of the 17th century, 1621 to be exact. And, you know, the, the, the pilgrims had already been in America for six months. They didn't have any flour. They didn't have any butter. They didn't have any sugar. They didn't have marshmallows. No- they didn't have marshmallows for their sweet potato casserole. Well, really? I, didn't, yeah, I, didn't I don't think that. they did. They didn't have those marshmallows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's actually no even evidence that there was turkey there. So we tried to reproduce a, uh, a likely Thanksgiving dinner and probably at the center of the table instead of a turkey was succotash which is a, a, a stew made made with the three sisters. You know, there's uh, some beautiful nuances. So that recipe's in the book. And uh, that's such a genius combination of food because when you combine those three, squash, beans, and corns, you have all the amino acids necessary for human sustenance. So that's a whole protein. Uh, you have niacin, you have complex carbohydrates, you have a, a wide variety of fibers, your microbiome is going to like it. Uh, it tastes delicious. It's a, it comes from a sustainable way of agriculture. It's just pure genius. It actually uh, originated 7,000 years ago in what's today Mexico, but then migrated up through the Native American cultures to you know reach as far north as New England in the United States. So it's just it's just such genius that we've kind of let fall by the wayside. And that succotash recipe looks gorgeous. I I'm craving it right now. I might just hang up with you soon right after this and go make some because it looks fabulous. I think I could eat that probably every day of every day of the week. Um, then you also had um, um, mohawk baked beans. So uh, a much less, it had maple syrup in it, but it was not like sticky, sweet baked beans. It looked like a beautiful baked bean recipe as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we, when it comes to the most important ingredient to longevity, it's not 
turmeric, which has good evidence, or or um, bitter melon or miso, fermented miso. They're all very healthy. It's taste. And um, Americans don't really know how to make beans taste good. I don't know about you, but I don't like Boston baked beans, you know, out of a can. Um, they, for me, they're just meh. But well, they're usually too all- sweet for me. I add a little bit of, yeah. if I get them, I add a little bit of um, vinegar. <laughs> that helps me with oh, the oh, balance. That on the feet. Yeah. yeah. But all that sugar is still there. Yeah. But uh, Dave, who, uh, who made that for us on an open fire, uh, a brilliant chef. Um, and I'm trying to find the, the recipe here. I don't, 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 don't know it by heart, but um, uh, he did that. And he also um, uh, cooked a breakfast for us from a sort of ground hominy, a, a, a cornmeal that was also, you know, plant, there it is. No, that's not it. And actually, you you had mentioned in the book that having these beans for breakfast. So I think, I mean, that's something that's very classic English and a classic English breakfast includes beans. And I think um, we don't normally think about beans for breakfast, but it makes perfect sense as a breakfast food. Even maybe that three bean soup (laughs) for breakfast. And and think about that. So what do Americans traditionally eat? Eggs and bacon. Cereal. Full of saturated fat, they, they, they make you tired, or cereal, most of which is just candy. Um, it, it, so that spikes your your blood sugar, and then you have that insulin crash. Um, you eat one of these hearty soups, for, you're getting all the nutrients, but also it's really slow burn food. So you're not hungry until lunchtime, and you're satiated. And um, by the way, though, I, I do want to credit the chefs. Um, the Mohawk beans and the, the warriors of the rainbow cranberry mush is what he called. It was Dave Smoke McCluskey. Uh, and he was Native American, a fabulous guy. And, um, you know, it really turned me on to these. I mean, these are slightly altered from their original form, just, just so Americans would like them. Um, but, I mean, the Mohawk baked beans, I'll imagine this for a minute. Uh, so you have the cranberry beans, which are these big sort of meaty beans, uh, uh, onion, super dark maple syrup, but not a lot, tomato paste, and some some yellow mustard, and then ground pepper. There's not a lot of ingredients, but you got the sweet, and you got the umami, and you got the um, um, uh, the savory in there. So it's you know a small symphony. At least it's a quartet. Let's call it that. <laughs> It sounds it sounds amazing, and I like that it just really doesn't have a lot of ingredients. It doesn't sound difficult to prepare at all. Um, also, some other types of beans that I want to bring up is black-eyed peas, because that's also a very um, – that's going into more of the African diaspora, the African-American foodways. And Hop and John is considered to be good luck, actually, in the new year, because those little – Black-eyed peas are supposed to symbolize coins. So you're supposed to eat black hop and John, which is black-eyed peas, and um, and greens symbolizes money, paper money, and the black-eyed peas symbolize um, symbolize coins, and that's supposed to bring prosperity in the new year. So if you need an excuse to dig into some beans, that's a good reason to do it right off the bat. And I think once you do, you're going to love that dish and want to make it every month or every week, but Hop and John's a great one. And black eyed pea soup, you have a really nice recipe for, 
Um, so I think that's another one that people might not, I mean, maybe people buy some chickpeas and they're used to eating hummus, but maybe branching out, even if you're already eating beans, branching out a little bit with different varieties could really help you get more into your life in, in a more regular way. Yeah. Black eyed peas actually originate in Africa and they were brought over by the African came African-American and uh, integrated. I, one of the more interesting, I think, manifestations of that come from the Gullah Geechee people who uh, occupy the Eastern seacoast, uh, the Carolinas, and uh, they were great rice farmers. They, they grew a variant, uh, African variant of rice, which today is called Carolina gold, uh, which is, it's um, a little, um, I guess, meatier rice. It's got the grain and it. it's got a nuttier and almost a vanilla aftertaste from it. It's super delicious. And um, the Gullah Geechee, because they were so good at growing rice, they were allowed some freedom and they fused their native African uh, food roots with Native American and their European enslavers. And uh, they came up with this just raving genius culinary tradition called the Gullah Geechee. And, um, you know, we think of gumbo as something that originates in in um, New Orleans, but actually gumbo is the West African word for okra. And um, they're Gullah Geechee are, are geniuses at making uh, okras with all kinds of different ingredients. Yeah, the Gullah Geechee, it's so inspiring, the cuisine that comes from there. And I just love how you've highlighted these different healthful foodways in America, right here on our land. Um, so just let's just recap one more time here. What are the biggest longevity foods in general? What are the blue zone? What's the blue zone diet in general? It's 90 to 100% whole food plant-based. It's high carbohydrate. It's a high carb diet, but I think carb, the word carbohydrate is the worst word in the dictionary because simple carbs like sugar and white bread and packaged sweets are the, the most toxic food in our food system. And complex carbs, both carbs, are the healthiest. So uh, in blue zones, you're seeing whole grains, corn, wheat, and rice. You're seeing a vast variety of, of greens. Uh, you know, many of which we'd weed whack from our backyard, but they're baked into beautiful pies and made into salads. Dandelion, for example, amaranth. Um, tubers like sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, even nuts. And then the the uh, the star of our show, beans. The number beans. one long, the official number one longevity food, yeah. beans. Woo! But um. You know, it is interesting about the carbohydrate idea because when people think carbs, they think, oh, and actually I've had people say to me like, oh no, beans, aren't they high in carbs? Thinking that they shouldn't be eating those. And I mean, I, I have other dietitian friends who are like, where are we in this world if my client is asking me if it's okay to eat an apple, <laughs> you know, like, because they have think it's too high in carbs. So I feel like the point that you're making about we're not really different. I mean, maybe you're not making this point. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I would like to say that the differentiation between highly refined, concentrated carbohydrate foods and whole fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, 
all those foods have carbohydrates in them, but they're in this package, this like nutritional package with nutrients and fiber and water. And so those, you don't have to worry about those and don't have to count the grams of carbohydrates in those, but looking at maybe reducing your highly processed foods, it really comes down to me to really the highly processed versus the minimally processed in that way. And I, and I love that you make a point of that in talking about, you said that first, when you talked about the blue zone diet is that it's a whole food, minimally processed um, way of eating. That's right. Yeah. I mean, even still the carbohydrates, we, the only fuel our brain uses is carbohydrates, glucose. Um, you, you need carbohydrates. It's just, it's just such a horrible word because, you know, these crazed carnivores in defense of their, you know, eating a steak a day, um, they, they malign carbs and they use the simple processed carbs as their example of being unhealthy and they're right. But what they miss is the complex carbs, like, as you point out, the apples or the beans and the whole grains. These are the best foods in our, uh, our food system, the absolute best. And they're carbs. So we should just do away with the word carbs. I got to think of some new, some new uh, definitions for, for uh, good carbs and bad carbs. Well, if anyone can think of some new definitions for that and new ways of, of framing it so that you really want to embrace it. I know it's going to be you, Dan. Dan. <laughs> so I will look forward to that, the new word for good carbs out there. Um, but in the meantime, I think everyone is hopefully inspired here to eat more beans, to look at different varieties of beans. And there's certainly a plethora of reasons to do so. Um, and a big one being that the people who live the most long, lush lives, long, delicious, healthful lives are eating beans regularly. So, and, and that you, you, you touched on an important point. People in blue zones, even they're eating this healthy food and limited to a hundred, they're not doing, they don't eat this food because it's healthy. They eat this food because the women, women in blue zones are the ones who have kept the food tradition for at times, in some cases, millennia. And you have sometimes 10 centuries of trial and error to make this simple peasant food taste delicious. And they do amazing things. I'll just give you one example I observed. It was a uh, it was in my first book, The Blue Zone Kitchen, um, in Icaria, Greece. This woman did a black-eyed pea pie and it had onions and rosemary in it and, and this beautiful savory broth that she she baked, slow baked, before she put the top on, the phyllo dough top. Um, but um, before she put the onions in, she kneaded them like you'd knead bread dough. And by doing that, it released the sugars, the sugars from the onions in a way that if you just chopped it up, it was just a tiny little thing. But the result was this sweet, Slight, very slightly sweet and savory chickpea pie that was just amazing. And, uh, th you know, th that kind of culinary genius um, evolves over time. And it's going to the wayside in all these blue zones as the Burger Kings arrive and the packaged junk arrives and the new generation wants the new stuff. 
and grandma's recipes disappear. So both the Blue Zones and the Blue Zones American Kitchen were really works of anthropology trying to capture these authentic recipes uh, in a way that they're aspirational and, you know, but also easy to make and, and they stay alive for another few hundred years. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for bringing that to us, for bringing us the inspiration of all the Blue Zones ways of eating, and particularly today, inspiration for getting more beans into our lives. Uh, really appreciate your being here. And uh, I encourage people to check out really all of your books, but especially this new one, um, because it's really, really beautiful. So thanks so much for being here, Dan. Thank you. And if People have more questions. They can reach me uh, at Dan Butner on Instagram. And I'm very good about, I personally answer all the questions. And uh, I just want to thank people for hanging on and, and spending their valuable time listening to us. So I, I regard it as an honor. Likewise. So great sentiments. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thanks for listening. I hope you're inspired to further explore the wide world of delicious bean dishes. Join me next time for another One Real Good Thing.